Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in for the latest edition of the Freshfields MedTech podcast. I'm Vinita Kailasanath, a life sciences and tech transactions partner in the Silicon Valley office Freshfields. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Jonathan Olson, Managing Director of Ivy Tree Advisors and Investor and many other things. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today about your impressions and some med tech hot topics coming out of the JPM Healthcare Conference. Thank you for having me, Vanita. So I will launch right into it. 2023 was a pretty tough year for med tech and particularly digital health M&A, as well as going public, raising money. What sorts of ideas did you hear folks talking about in connection with a digital health market reset in 2024? Yeah, so I think it is chatter at multiple levels. You know, let's just talk about ventures for a minute, because I think there was a fear going into Q4 of 2023, that a lot of ventures would not raise follow-on rounds. But based on the work that we do, and half of our work at Ivy Tree Advisors is with venture-backed companies that are in digital health, many of them serving pharmas, sometimes payers. And I'll tell you that really the top 20% of already funded companies are still doing a great job of closing their rounds. Indeed, if you're going out there and starting your first company, it is still the case that the top 2% are the ones that get funding. But within that 2%, the top 20%, which are hitting their milestones and remain on pace, those ones have continued to raise rounds. And it may take twice as long, and the valuation may be flat to a prior round. They may be raising a Series A2 instead of a Series B, for example. They might be taking only the amounts needed right now for the next immediate milestones. But I don't think that the funding environment has been nearly as bad as the macros have been trying to tell us. That's reassuring to hear. Do you think that 2024 is going to bring a kind of return to the, I'll call them labeled rounds after these sorts of unlabeled or creatively named rounds of 2023? So one would hope, independent of this capital environment with high rates right now, which gives some pretty good alternatives and treasuries to just make money at a risk-free rate that is quite high, even in a money market. The valuations of companies were quite high in 2022 and even 2023. The bubble was starting to deflate a little bit on those valuations into the end of this year. There's still some bubble to deflate, I think. In my discussion with VCs over the past year and a half, I've heard that many health tech VCs have just held off making any investments because they viewed the valuations just to be too expensive. So I think we are coming up on a inflection point, hopefully this year. I think that we, in the first half of this year, are still going to experience probably a little bit of the psychology of, oh goodness, when is the recession starting? But I expect the back half of the year to open things up quite a bit. And I'm also optimistic to see some more action in the IPO market. We've had a few lately that have seemingly opened up the door again to that. And I think that's very good for people who are venture investors who are waiting to get liquid on looks like about a trillion dollars of total invested capital with gains. So once that becomes liquid, I think we will start to see a new VC cycle. As for now, there is just an overhang of capital and a lot of VCs are either wait and see or they are perhaps even struggling to raise a second round, even if they are raising a second fund. 
And I think that's a temporary situation, which will clear up by the end of this year. Interesting insight. Since we're talking about capital markets, another thing that I'm thinking about and watching is the potential for delisting. I saw a stat somewhat recently that around 17% or so of public digital health companies were trading below a dollar for somewhere around 30 consecutive business days. Mm. And so there's that potential for delisting. So I wonder if we're going to see some other interesting transactions, whether M&A or otherwise, as these companies think about how to move forward. Yeah, that's a really good point. CEOs of companies, whether you're talking about a biotech or a health tech company, have to decide what's the reason to IPO. If the purpose is to raise funding and you are less concerned about the share price performance, however liquid that may be, then it's still an option to be chosen among other viable options in the private markets. And so it's hard to look at the value of the shares of some of these biotechs. They're just so all over the map. I don't look closely at it. I want to make sure that they are well-funded and hit their milestones. And whether they get that from public or private sources, they will be rewarded for being successful. But I, I do think that is something to note in the meantime, it is a danger. You don't want to create an illiquidity discount if you don't have to, because that tends to devalue the shares because of illiquidity by up to 33%. And, and that's not something you want to generally do as a CEO if you're already public. Indeed. Well, let's focus on some of the success stories and buzz coming out of JPM. Yes, I was walking around rainy San Francisco. I felt like there was quite a bit of buzz around diabetes management, CGMs. Did anything particularly catch your attention? Oh my goodness. There were some really interesting themes this year. We have to think about what time period we're in now. We've just come out of the pandemic where people were forced to try telehealth because they could not go to a doctor's office 100% of the time. And perhaps they discovered that everything could be delivered to their house via Uber or DoorDash or Amazon. And so while that usage may have spiked up to as high as 80% during the pandemic, it's probably earned a place now permanently in, in 20 to 30% of interactions overall, in my experience. And certainly it has solidified the digital mobile self-service channel for a lot of users under 40 who kind of expect that digital relationship now with their drug and doctor and health system. So that's one thing in my discussions as to whether digital or data are optional. I think pretty much across the board from the people I've spoken to in biopharma and health tech, they do not see those as optional anymore. That is a required competitive advantage for everything they're doing. Now, this is obviously important in diseases like diabetes, but really any cardiovascular metabolic disease where the impacts are not noticeable daily, but certainly over a multi-year span of time accumulate. It's the boiling the frog analogy where, well, did we do the maintenance we needed from a lifestyle perspective over the past three years? We're seeing a much higher prevalence of colon cancer in people under 40. Now, is that a product of a, a sedentary lifestyle during COVID or is that decades of packaged foods with artificial chemicals? We don't know. It could be anything. But we do know that cardiovascular is a huge contributing factor to poor health across almost all the disease areas. Most especially recently, we're finding that to be the case in neurology, in cancer, and in psych. So I, I think that is another theme we're seeing is just the interdependency on cardiovascular metabolic with everything. <laughs> and then also, I think there's a big emphasis on neuro and brain health that's emerged. And Lily's progress here has been great. 
on that front. We're starting to see, and let me give credit as well to the biogens of the world and others that are coming out with assets in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. You know, we're seeing that the proteins that contribute to brain plaques are a combination of a handful of proteins in the blood. So the person may have Alzheimer's, but also Lewy body or Parkinson's features in the brain. And scientists are now starting to be able to detect all of these markers in the blood. So wouldn't it be great if we knew 20 years in advance of you getting Alzheimer's that you were already starting to produce some of these proteins and we could do something about it or change your lifestyle accordingly? So I think all of those are very hopeful moments and that combined with some of the work in data we're now seeing, it's going to be bringing hopefully a new generation of drugs and digital experiences to the marketplace. I agree. I think that being fluent in the digital world is basically table stakes at this point. Yes. It's just essential. Absolutely. I, I'm also really interested to see how technology can help to bridge some of these access gaps. You know, you talked a lot about a variety of chronic conditions. I think that hopefully things like virtual specialty care, very interesting announcement from Amazon about their foundational collaboration with Amada to try to just bridge that access gap so that folks are really starting to engage with their health before they end up in urgent care or in some sort of other very expensive and ultimately reactive healthcare situation. Yeah, you're totally right. And I think the Omada example is great. I mean, even before that deal, Omada has been out there for a long time on the pre-diabetes piece. And what's so interesting about that more preventative approach is that it's starting to become relevant as a model in other disease areas as well. So how much do we think about pre-Alzheimer's, for example? Supposedly, there could be 600,000 people in the U.S. that they say are likely to have Alzheimer's. But what if it's actually 6 million if we count people that we would consider to have pre-Alzheimer's, if that's even a thing? So it's not clear yet what the total addressable population is and how much we should allow access. The tricky part of what happened with Biogen is being first to market with an Alzheimer's drug that was not necessarily a complete cure, but a preventative measure, is that it was a difficult thing to approve something, to your point, Benita, that is preventative in nature and prevents the progression, but doesn't necessarily reverse it. So in some respects, I think we are with the neuro and cardiovascular world in the place we were with cancer in the 90s, when there was no clear cure. Everybody knew somebody who had it, and we were right at the cusp of what would then be hopefully a, a whole arsenal of great drugs and lifestyle fixes through digital that could ultimately shift the path of the disease within the population, hopefully over the next you know, 10 to 20 years. Since we're talking about conditions and lifestyle, immediately GLP-1s come to mind as well. Yes. Last year... There's a lot of swirl around GLP-1s and the effect on med tech. I feel like the conversation has evolved a bit as the year elapsed. What, what's your take on it? It's very interesting. I'll come at it from a few different angles. I mean, I think first, obviously, with Novo Nordisk Ozempic and Lily's Manjaro giving us legitimate diabetes drug, essentially, because really uh, diabetes and obesity are two sides of the same coin, it's moved into something a little bit more widespread than just the use of the drug. I think we're also back to all the elements of, well, how do you come off that drug? And is there a digital container for that? That could be the long-term relationship wrapper, W-R-A-P-P-E-R, 
right? Will patients stay on these drugs longer than one year? We know already that when they stop, there's a very fast relapse. They put the weight back on and everything starts to return to the mean. So we don't know if it's healthy to do these drugs longer term. We have seen one side effect that's very visible, which is ozempic face. And that's the face becoming very fallow. Now you would expect to have some weight loss or an obesity drug fine, but we're just not clear yet on the long-term effects. And the fact that it's an injectable also, that typically involves a bit of monitoring where you want a digital relationship to see how this goes, not just from the perspective of you know whether there's problems with the injection site, but also understanding what are the other real world data effects in very large populations that you might not see inside of a clinical trial. So there's a management component here. And I think with the patients requesting this drug so often, it's putting even the primary care physicians on notice that they have to be involved with this in some way if they're going to be prescribing these drugs. Completely agree. I mean, it's just such a large addressable market. And I think that that initial conversation is just potentially the beginning of a relationship that probably will include a mix of drugs and med tech solutions, particularly when it comes to compliance, non-compliance, what happens in the post-ozempic phase of a patient's treatment plan or life journey. So I think it's really more around thinking about the whole suite of patient and user behavior than anything else. Yes, I completely agree. I think that it segues to the other side of this equation, which was a really big theme at JP Morgan, certainly during the two days of conference I attended for Fierce Pharma, which is the other hot topic and theme is AI and data. The hopes for AI have been high. You could argue that we're at the peak of that hype cycle before we enter the reality phase of seeing where AI is really actually useful in this phase, in our daily lives, and where it is probably premature in some respects. But we have to not forget that AI is reliant on data. And as a first principle, if your data is not clean and validated and sourced well and combined with other data sets, especially in healthcare, you're probably not ready for analytics or AI. So I think what's happening pretty much across the board in a lot of biopharmas especially, but also true for those health tech companies that are data-based and serve those pharmas, is that everyone's getting their house in order. From a data perspective, we need to have privacy in place. There needs to be governance and ethics that are out front in the healthcare industry before we start, quote unquote, just using this data. Because then the cat's out of the bag, and particularly in the world of pharma, we don't want to create situations where the standard becomes much stricter in the future, which it will. And then we look back five years prior and realize that, goodness, we really did not regulate this in the first few years. And now everyone is at risk for fines or not having the right data structures or not having the right privacy protections in place. So we at Ivy Tree Advisors have done a lot of projects recently in data and AI over the past two, two and a half years in preparation for this. And as a very consistent theme in best practice, you know, we do recommend having these types of regulatory and rule-based user arrangements in place because the contracts are complicated. And even as a use case for AI to parse through all the permissions for that when you have purchased as a pharma company could be 150 data sets. 
no human brain can really understand all the rules of what happens when these particular five data sets are combined and the rules are this for this particular country. So in that respect, we have some immediate opportunities in AI. And I think a lot of the farmers are looking for the low hanging fruit. The very hopeful theme across the board was that it does look like there's a lot more interest in applying this as a standard practice inside of clinical R&D and having real world data studies that are observational studies that augment clinical trials with secondary endpoints and additional evidence. So that was really a wonderful sign this year to see so many heads of research and clinical development mentioning that. Agree. I, I think your observations are spot on. Health systems are also really grappling with these foundational issues, like developing the AI strategy and the data governance really in parallel with adopting the technology. Yes. And so I think that's just also taking a lot of mind share in a good way, but it's also a little bit like building the plane as you're flying it. <laughs> and so. That's right. It, I, I think that's just going to be something we're going to hear more about throughout 2024 and years to come. I mean, Vanita, you're right on the cusp of this with everything that you're doing in the legal world. And, uh, you know, it's often the case, it's almost always the case in healthcare and in technology, especially that the regulation really tends to lag the advances in the science. And that's okay. But in this case, to the extent possible, we really need to co-inform the governance of these AI technologies in particular, because we can't have a 10% hallucination rate of an AI bot for medical decision-making, right? That's just not really a tenable error rate. So a lot of this AI is likely to be supportive and augmentative to human beings for a time being until we can really figure out what the AI is making its conclusions based on, what the sources are, uh, and, and really thinking through how all of this works as one cohesive system before we just trust the algorithm to make the decisions for us. I think we're a few years away from that at the very least. <laughs> Completely agree. I think what we're going to see is humans and companies that effectively deploy these AI tools outcompete those who are not as skilled at engineering and increasing the efficiency and quality of their processes, really. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, I don't want to lose track of just how great science is. And sometimes there are some really great scientific stories too that come out of JP Morgan. And one of the ones that really fascinates me and is, is a hopeful one is the progress that has been made with CRISPR editing. Bluebird's sickle cell anemia drug is quite interesting. The cells of the patient are sorted, they're transformed using CRISPR's editing technology and then transferred back into the body. That's kind of a wow moment, a watershed moment for genetic medicine. And it's very hopeful. Great science is being done here. And granted, it's you know, $3 million for that drug, but the prices will probably come down across the board, hopefully over time, even in rare diseases. And that is another kind of quieter theme, but a, a hopeful theme that we're beginning to see some of these drugs come to market on the basis of all the work we have done in genomic medicine. That's a fantastic, hopeful thought. Um, our time together has flown by. Do you have any kind of closing observations about med tech or biotech coming out of this year's JPM conference? For all of the 
talk of worry about the recession, I think that the tone of the conference was really cautious optimism. And I think that makes me very bullish on 2024, that there are opportunities here. And I think we've spoken about the way in which the winds are blowing. Now that that situation has become clearer to us, I think this is really just a moment for ventures and growth companies to tack the sales. And we at Ivy Tree Advisors love working in that environment because what it means is we can confer competitive advantage through great strategy, through great commercialization, through great project management as we launch products. So if there's anyone out there that is curious about how to navigate those waters, we are definitely available to chat and really appreciate, obviously, you, Vinita, for putting this together so that we could have a reflection moment as we begin, a, hopefully, a very good year in 2024. Well, Jonathan, I've so enjoyed our discussion. Thank you so much for sharing your perspectives. And of course, thank you to our listeners for joining us for this edition of the Freshfields MedTech Podcast. Take care, everyone.